0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Who's to blame for a burst dam that has devastated parts of Ukraine? Russia claims to have inflicted thousands of casualties repelling a counter-offensive, while Ukraine says it's made gains. How do we understand the truth as the pace of fighting picks up, along with the claims and counter-claims? Professor Michael Clark and a former senior military intelligence officer will explain how we cut through this 21st century fog of war. Also this week, as Rishi Sunak announces a UK-led summit on the safety of artificial intelligence, we assess whether AI could really
1: go rogue. Because AI technologies, we cannot predict with full certainty the way in which they will behave. There is a risk that they could do something that we didn't want them to do.
0: And the Chaplain General tells us why Britain has been training Ukrainian Padres.
2: Helping them to understand how pastoral care, spiritual support and moral guidance can be delivered in warlike situations such that they are experiencing.
0: Michael Clark, hello. A remarkable week in Ukraine.
3: Yes, uh, this is the week we have been uh, an- anticipating for some time. You know, the big show is beginning now. Uh, we've been working up to it. There was, uh, you know, as so-called shaping operations and a lot of probing going on for the last couple of weeks and a big air offensive that started before that. At some point, the big show has got to begin and it began on Monday this week. And so we're all waiting to see now how it pans out for the next uh, few weeks. It won't go on forever, of course. Every offensive runs out of steam at some point, but this one, I think, will go for several weeks at least.
0: And Mike, the flooding from the collapse of the Nova Dam seems to have peaked. For the thousands of ordinary Ukrainians, it's about clearing up and finding new homes, but it's changed the landscape around Kherson. How much strategic impact does that have?
3: It might have quite a lot. It narrows the front, but for both sides. So it's it's a defensive measure for Russian forces. I mean, you know, only forces on the defensive blow up bridges and dams. Uh, forces on the offensive don't blow things up before they get there. So it's a defensive move. It allows the Russians to, as it were, move away from that front because it makes it very difficult for the Ukrainians to cross the river. But equally, it allows the Ukrainians to concentrate as well, probably further east in Zaporizhia. So the, the whole effect is to narrow the front and the ultimate effect of that militarily might actually be to Ukraine's ultimate advantage because it gives them a, a more narrow front to fight on for the next couple of months.
0: Well, the more that's happening in Ukraine, the harder it can be to understand what it all means. In the last few days, for example, Russia claiming to have thwarted a major Ukrainian attack in Donetsk and killed 300 troops, but Ukraine claiming some gains and saying it has no information of such an offensive. Just to complicate things further, the Wagner mercenary group rubbishing claims from its paymasters in Moscow to have inflicted thousands of casualties. This is a war where we get real-time updates constantly, but making sense of competing claims and fragments of information can be hard. So how do we as observers make sense of it all in the 21st century fog of war? Let's bring in Colonel Philip Ingram. His Twitter bio, which we can definitely trust, says he's an ex-military spook and now writes and broadcasts about things intelligence, security and more. Uh, Philip Ingram, good to speak to you. Thanks very much for coming today. Um, From intelligence analysts to journalists, I'm hoping you've got some tips on critical thinking to share with us.
4: Well, critical thinking. Yes, I wish. That's the answer to the $6 million question. But the the biggest issue that we have is the flow of information being so fast. And instead of going through trusted channels, as it did during the Second World War, coming uh, fed into everyone's mobile device at a pace, um, it's very difficult to sift out the misinformation, the disinformation, the propaganda from the truth. Um, And that takes a little bit of skill. And that's why we have to trust um, reliable sources like BFBS.
0: Thank you. Um, and to take an example, for the ordinary citizen waking up on Tuesday morning, they hear on the radio that the Novokakova dam has been breached. They look at their phone. There are already dozens of updates on the new apps. Russia saying it was Ukraine shelling, Ukraine saying it was Russia's sabotage, all mixed in with the satellite pictures of the damage and stories of villages already being flooded. How can the average person do something with all that information to try and make sense of it all?
4: Well, the first thing to do is not believe what you're reading immediately um, and to take a little bit of time over a cup of tea and analyze information from two or three different reliable sources, looking at the history of the information because this conflict, I class the Russian Ministry of Defense as the Russian Ministry of Disinformation. 99% of what they put out is untrue and has proven untrue. And very early on, I concluded that there wasn't enough information in the public domain to make a Uh, decision on what was being provided um, that's there, but you then start to look at capability and intent. From a capability perspective, it would be very difficult for the Ukrainians to get in a position to blow the dam up. From an intent perspective, it doesn't match what they need to do. However, from the Russians' perspective, they were in control of it. So it was easy for them to get a capability in place to do that. And they've had the intent to carry out these sorts of disasters for for a long period of time. There were reports last year of of Russia mining the dam. But it takes that level of analysis from understanding what's going on historically, to understanding the tactics of what's been used, to understanding who's going to get the advantages to be able to really put that into, into proper context.
0: And Mike, this is also, I guess, your everyday as well, trying to cut through everything from a bit of spin to outright lies to see what may well be a big truth hiding in plain sight.
3: Yes, exactly. And what Philip says is exactly right. Don't believe the first thing you look at. Usually when something happens, whether it's a terrorist attack, even if it's a fire in a warehouse, the early reports are normally not exactly right. When I used to teach uh, research students this, I used to say that the, the, the principle is what I call CVC, the first C is corroboration, you know, is there more than one source saying this? And what is the mm. source? The V is verification. Does, does one source tend to corroborate from a different perspective? And the last C is the most important, context. Does it feel mm. right? You know, you've got experience, does this feel right? If it doesn't feel right, have a look at the first two things, look at the corroboration and the verification. But it does take time and we all make mistakes and it pays to be cautious in the first few hours
0: uh, Philip, it's quite difficult, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you want to be balanced and treat each side's statements equally in terms of trust or scepticism if you want to get an accurate picture. On the other hand, we have this moral view of who is right and who is wrong, and we have a much longer verified history of lies from President Putin, as you mentioned earlier, including as many assurances that he would not even invade Ukraine.
4: Well, exactly. But it's it's more than just wanting to believe something. It's, it's trying to take that emotional gut feeling away from your analysis and you you analyze things from a logical perspective and you have to be willing to turn around and whilst the rest of the world is saying it's this, if your professional understanding says it's something different, you have to have the moral courage to stand up and say it is something different or it could be something different.
0: Philip, it was interesting to see uh, both the BBC and RTE getting flack on Twitter for having Russia's denial of attacking the dam as a latest headline. It was factually accurate though in in that they did deny it. wonder if either of you, you see any lessons in that?
4: There are lessons in it. And I you know I feel sorry for the major media outlets, because they are the reliable sources. And it's not just military analysts who um, are looking at them and all the rest of it. It's the general public. I think it's important they put a balanced picture out, because they don't necessarily have the experience in every case. Their top journalists will do, but they have to have some time off, they have to get some sleep. But they may not have the experience in, in every case to make that judgment call. And this is where you know some of the output from the likes of defense intelligence, which generally is very good indeed. But when you get major incidents like this, I think they should concentrate on that and, and give a little bit more of a steer because mainstream press will pick up on that and help um, the picture that's been painted to the general public.
3: Yes, I mean, I, I think the, the big difference is between reporting and analyzing, and those two things get a bit mixed in a lot of the mainstream media. It's absolutely right that the BBC and RT or whatever should report that the Kremlin has said this, the Kremlin has said that. But then there has to be some analysis which puts that into context. And that, that is a problem in modern media, particularly when the, the pressure is on to get things out quickly.
0: And Philip, as ordinary citizens, we no longer just have the mainstream media to rely on. We've heard a lot of in this war about Telegram channels. We're more familiar with Twitter. But do you find you can genuinely find worthwhile sources on there or does it just thicken the fog? Telegram is one of the biggest sources
4: of misinformation. Um, and one of the biggest difficulties is the speed of information. However, I use Telegram because I analyse the information that's coming from both sides and it's interesting to translate the same reports in different ways and see how they're being spun in different ways. But unless you are experienced in dealing with it, unless you're sceptical about the information that's being presented to you, don't believe everything from the outset and put it into context in the same way that Michael has said.
0: Um, Mike, um, any favoured sources you would recommend people to follow and maybe trust?
3: Oh, well, if they're looking for gains and losses in the war, Oryx, uh, O-R-Y-X, is a really good source and they, pre- they can give you the photographic evidence. So if they say 4,000 tanks have been uh, destroyed, you can look on their website and you could click every single one of those 4,000 cases and it will give you the photograph on which they base that assessment. Mazar, M-A-Z-A-R, is a very good source as well of, of independent material. Funnily enough, some of the reliable sources turn out to be Russian critics. Gherkin, Igor Strelkov calls himself Gherkin. He's very, very critical of the Russian military, having been one of the the leaders of the uh, breakaway republics back in 2014. And what he says often turns out to be surprisingly true. And so you you end up in this business always trying to build up trust in certain sources. If they let you down, then you just don't trust them as much.
0: And Philip Ingram, which sources would you recommend to trust? Well,
4: defense intelligence, the the report that they put out on a daily basis, is is generally quite good. I I wish they'd put a little bit more um, assessment in it um, and avoid some of the history, um, because what has happened is historical. What is going to happen is is intelligence. But it's the mainstream uh, press outlets, because they've generally spoken to people. They've verified what it is that's going on. It may not be completely up to uh, the immediacy of what's going on, but it's not far behind. And it is certainly going to be more verified than anything else that you'll pick up.
0: Colonel Philip Ingram, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time today. Right. Let's talk artificial intelligence again for a few reasons. And don't worry, Mike, our AI clones, or should I say clowns, will not be making another appearance. Starting with an intriguing story from a major conference in London. The chief of AI tests and operations for the US Air Force told his audience about a simulation of an AI drone tasked to find and destroy air defences. But after a human had refused to approve several strikes, the AI decided the way to complete its mission was to first kill its operator. So they trained it not to do that and instead IA went for the communication tower, linking it to its operator. However, there's a final plot twist. The US Air Force says there was no such simulation and that Colonel Tucker Hamilton misspoke to the Royal Aeronautical Society. He then gave a statement to clarify it was a thought experiment, but added they would not need a simulation to realise this is a plausible outcome. Uh, Mike, what do you make of this?
3: Yeah. It's a real problem. It's a, it's a realistic issue because it depends on how high a strategic requirement you give the AI. If you ask AI, what is the best way to get a convoy through that is being attacked? The, the answer from AI is that you should sacrifice a ship. You should work out which is the weakest Hmm. ship and sacrifice it to let the others get through. And if Hmm. the, if the, if the sacrifice is a second ship, then you should sacrifice the second ship. Now, that is not a human response and you wouldn't want to necessarily do that. You might end up doing it, but you wouldn't, to start with that assumption and what it brings out is how high a strategic task do you set the AI at and how much human interaction do you allow in that process this was Arthur C. Clarke's idea think of the film the book 2001 it's all about the HAL computer killing the members of the spacecraft that they're on because Mm. the HAL computer knows that's the best way to complete the the mission that, that the computer has been given
0: of course, this is part of a steady drumbeat of warnings about the risk of AI going rogue. Also this week from one of the Prime Minister's top AI advisors. In an interview, Matt Clifford said, AI may not be far off generating bioweapons or cyber attacks that could kill many humans, simply from where we would expect models to be in two years' time. Others are urging calm and caution, the technology minister, Paul Scully, saying such fears shouldn't stop us seeing all the good artificial intelligence can do how worried should we be? Is AI good or bad? Professor Rosaria Tadeo is Defence Science and Technology Fellow at the Alan Turing Institute and Senior Research Fellow at Oxford University's Internet Institute.
1: I don't think that there is any real risk of any other of sci-fi scenario where, you know, AI surpasses human intelligence or acquires consciousness of self-awareness. There are risks that AI might pose to individuals in terms of contributing to the use of force in the context of defence, and because AI technologies are technologies that we uh, cannot predict with full certainty the way in which they will behave, there is a risk that they could do something that we didn't want them to do, you know, targeting the wrong target on a battlefield. So there is a risk there, but it's a risk that is as serious as it is more circumscribed to specific contexts. So, in
0: that light, are you saying it is possible that AI could turn on human beings?
1: I think that if we imagine a full autonomous weapon system that is deployed, for example, to target combatants on a battlefield, uh, it's possible that that machine might decide to attack the wrong target, attack a non combatant, because it might take decisions that we did not foresee. It is likely, as you were mentioning before, that an AI system that is uh, used to launch cyber attacks might cause consequences, which are outside of the cyberspace, so to speak, that are kinetic and so impact to human beings, the analogue world around us. So there is their risk, but it's a risk that is much more, uh, let's say, uh, concrete in terms of what can happen in specific contexts.
0: In the the realms of science fiction, there's a tipping point where artificial science is able to think faster than humans can. And at that point, we lose control of it. It will always be at least one step ahead. There's a logic to that. In the real world, is there a flaw to that
1: logic? So the first flaw is that machines don't think. They do statistics, very quick math, so to speak. So that's the first flaw. The second flaw is that We are not at the point where we deploy machines without any form of human supervision. There is still a moment where a human can still pull the plug, so to speak. But we are going in a direction where humans are more and more remote from the machines. And so the risk that a machine might not be thinking faster than a human, but that a human might be too late to arrive, it's concrete. Do do you have an idea of how soon that could become a reality, that
0: there is no fail-safe human override?
1: It's not a matter of how much technology progresses. It's a matter of how we establish the governance of this technology. So it's not a prediction in terms of how soon we're going to get there. It's more of an assessment that we have to do in terms of how well we are establishing the policies and the rules around this technology for these risks to be mitigated.
0: South Korea already has machine gun turrets that can operate totally autonomously. It's just chosen to add a requirement for final human approval before firing. Trouble is, as soon as one powerful player decides to cut the human out of the loop, the playing field isn't level anymore and it could snowball. I mean, I presume your thinking is we really need governance to stop that happening.
1: We need governance and we need to be also uh, to pass the, let's say, idealistic distinction Uh, After the war in Ukraine, uh, the use of autonomous weapon systems is not anymore a taboo, unfortunately. We saw the first reported use of this kind of weapons in Libya in 2021, and in Ukraine, we saw both sides using this technology. So we cannot really rely anymore on the idea that this is not going to happen, because it's happening already. What is going to make the difference and mitigate the risk is how well we can govern the use of this technology and impose limits that are let's say uh, consistent with the values of our society so that we use this technology insofar as it's morally acceptable.
0: Yes consistent with the values of our society but there is the potential um, it could be trained to specifically do bad, a rogue state could set IA on a mission
1: uh, perhaps deploying a a biological weapon. So this is an interesting point because uh, there are two answers to that One is that we can only defend our societies if we uphold the values that we stand for seriously. It is true that there is always someone who will do uh, the worst of the things, but it's also true that if we put enough weight, regulations will enable us not only to avoid, first of all, for us to commit things that we consider immoral or therefore illegal, but also we will be able to hold those who don't respect these values and these rules accountable. We have war crimes, courts, exactly for that reason.
0: Is the genie then out of the bottle or do you think there is a good chance of AI being developed responsibly and kept under control? The the genie is not
1: entirely out of the bottle yet. There is a sense from defence institutions and a commitment to develop and use AI in what is called a responsible way. If there is no correct regulation, these weapons become too risky. And so the capability advantage that they bring might be easily offset by the risk that they bring as well. Do you worry
0: about the future of AI in in the context of which we're speaking?
1: Uh, Yes, quite a bit. Uh, It concerns me a lot um, because I think that there is uh, an ongoing uh, AI arm race, so AI is perceived correctly so as a necessary capability to maintain advantage over the opponent. And we know that this technology is a technology that has great potential but also important risks, uh, risks which have to do with loss of control we might imagine a use of AI, which is not coupled with the necessary framework to attribute more responsibility. So we might not be able to blame people when AI systems do something wrong. So there are a lot of important risks that uh, worry me a lot. I don't think that these risks are uh, unsolvable or not addressable, but I think that they are very complex and require a lot of effort and commitment to be addressed properly so that we can leverage the good side of AI for defense.
0: Rosaria Tadeo, great to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, Thank you. News, discussions, and analysis. This is Zitrap. Let's return now to the war in Ukraine. More than 15,000 Ukrainians have now had military training in the UK since Russia's all out invasion. But 10 troops have just completed a very different course. Back at the front line, they will not be fighting they will be unarmed. They are Ukrainian military chaplains who spent the last two weeks in Wiltshire, further developing their skills for supporting those fighting to free their country. But what is it that these Padres can bring that makes a difference to the war effort? And how have Britain's military chaplains been helping with that? Well, let's talk now to the Army's Chaplain General, the Reverend Michael D. Parker. Lovely to speak to you today, Padre. Tell us about the kind of training you and your colleagues have given these Ukrainian chaplains.
2: Hello, Kate. I guess the first thing I should say is what a great privilege it was for us to be asked as part of the UK's effort in support of our Ukrainian partners to deliver this very specific chaplaincy training. And our work with the Ukrainians has has been helping them to understand how pastoral care, spiritual support and moral guidance can be delivered in warlike situations such that they are experiencing we had a couple of the chaplains who are with us who've been working in military hospitals, and you can only imagine what 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 they are seeing at the moment in terms of injuries to service personnel returning from uh, from the front line, and indeed, the kind of vicarious trauma this causes to the uh, to to the medical staff to the um to the nurses, the doctors, the surgeons who are are having to treat these individuals. So um, all of the horrors of war are absolutely being experienced by our Ukrainian partners at the moment.
0: And that value of the Padre support to the individual troops is obvious, I guess, but in the big picture of the war effort, can it make a real difference?
2: Well, gosh, I guess only time will tell on that front. Um, I mean, both, both sides in this conflict have a form of chaplaincy at work, but with perhaps slightly different motivations. The role of a chaplain is to try and build greater strength within the moral component of fighting power. Well, that sounds great as a piece of doctrine. What does that actually mean? It, it means being there for people in times of, of great need. If, if you ask a soldier to, to be in a conflict situation, their training will take over. But then there'll come a moment when perhaps they're reflecting on some of the things they've done, some of the things they've been asked to do, some of their concerns from, from wider life, all of which can begin to act as a nagging doubt on on whether what they're doing is, is actually the right thing. Chaplains are there to listen to them in those moments to try and help them make sense of their experiences and also to remind them that some of the things that they're being asked to do in war are not things that we would normally want people to experience, and, and trying to help them understand that this is not a normal thing to do and that when the war is over there will be a time when, when they return to a new version of normal, when they return to a, a new relationship with the world around them, which is, which is not based in, in violence. Mm-hmm.
0: Unarmed, these chaplains will also be accompanying the troops right to the front line. What might they be required to do practically?
2: There are a number of things which we, from our own experience, have been working with our Ukrainian partners in helping them understand. Very practical things like identification and burial of remains, particularly hasty burials where the situation is such that it's it's too dangerous for any sense of repatriating there's also the practical element of uh, enabling soldiers to say their prayers, to make their confession, uh, and on occasions to be with those soldiers whose uh, whose life is slipping away, to uh, to offer to them the the ministry of last rites, to pray with them in such in such desperate situations.
0: Ukraine specifically asked you to deliver this training and there is a much longer history of military chaplaincy in Britain. What is the strategic role for you and your colleagues across Britain's forces?
2: Well, wow, that's a really big question and we could we could spend <laughs> a lot of time unpacking that, Kate. Um, we, we do exist to do those three things. Uh, it's, it's about providing pastoral care, which is care to everyone in the armed forces, not just those who have a particular religious confession. We're there to offer spiritual support, which is about providing for the religious needs of the community and indeed the needs of those people of other belief forms, which perhaps at the moment aren't represented within chaplaincy as it's structured. We also try to be um, moral guides, by, by which we mean helping the organisation think about its behaviours, about its own ethical foundation. What is it that motivates us to do what we do? And are those motivations motivations which are good and right as seen by wider society? Um, that's the kind of strategic level stuff we do. But actually, the real soundbite is to say that we exist to care for the army's people.
0: And military chaplains are not just Christian, they come from a broad range of faiths. How do you navigate the fact that there are people you're supporting who have no particular faith, who may even be quite suspicious of religion?
2: There are plenty of people who are suspicious of of religion, Kate. There are one or two chaplains who are a bit suspicious of religion as well we have always prided ourselves on being there for everybody it is it is religion that empowers us to do what we do it is religion that qualifies us to do what we do at the moment as chaplains but but that very much sets the tone of how we interact with people. We we become a sanctuary. We're a trusted space for other people. Mm. And I think because of that, it's the religious element which often makes people feel comfortable talking with us. Once they get over the initial, oh gosh, this person's going to start bashing me with a Bible or some other scriptural mm. text, they quickly realise that's, that's not really the sort of people we are. We are just genuinely inspired by our faith to want to to want to care for other people and to want what's best, what's best for them. And sometimes that does mean helping, helping people who, who not only don't share our, our religious beliefs, but actually feel quite contrary to them. That's, that's no barrier in terms of receiving support from me or indeed from any of the chaplains in the army.
0: And who provides the support to the Padres, those 10 Ukrainians who've just returned? Who do they have to turn to?
2: Well, obviously, they're part of a much bigger family of chaplains in Ukraine. Uh, They only formed their chaplaincy department uh, just over a year ago, uh, having been directed to do so by the president. So they're still growing that sense of the support network. But we've shared with them some of our experiences and the things that that we do to try and look after each other as as chaplains.
0: What kind of frame of mind were they in when they went back? Uh,
2: Determined. Uh, I've yet to meet a Ukrainian here who is not in a very clear and determined state of mind that they are returning to Ukraine to do a job that is desperately needed. And when involved in a war of national survival, that focuses the mind in a way that um, you only have to look into the eyes of a Ukrainian service person over in the UK training to know that They are absolutely driven by the sense of justice that they feel they're fighting for in the defence of their country.
0: Reverend Michael Deepaga, really good to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Kate. And Mike, those Ukrainian Padres have returned into a fight that looks like it's going to increasingly test that determination in the coming weeks.
3: Yes, it certainly will. And you know, when I think of the padre's role, uh, there are two comments that always have always stuck with me. One was Norman Schwarzkopf, you know, who commanded American forces in the Gulf War in 1991, mm. and I heard him at, at a public meeting a few years later, and he said, he said, in all my fighting career, I've never met an atheist in a foxhole. Yes. And that's absolutely true. And, and the other one was General Patrick Sanders, Chief of the General Staff. Now, when he, he was the last man in Basra, and they had a really tough time in Basra, tougher than people realise, I think. And he was speaking at Roussey afterwards, immediately afterwards, and he was saying there in this public lecture, he said, oh, I could have done without this or that, officer, if I had to. I could have, done, I could have got by without this facility or that facility. But he said, I could not have done it without the Padre. He said he was my single most important officer that he said the boys would not have come through that without the Padre. And a couple of years later, I happened to be sitting with him at a dinner and I reminded him that he'd said that. And he looked at me very hard and he said, yeah, absolutely true. I still think it now, I could not have got through without the Padre.
0: Professor Michael Clark, thank you very much. And my thanks to all of our guests. That is all for now. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. If you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel as well as our home at com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.